Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe. Tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, the communication around the coronavirus. Are we finding out what we need to know? Are we over-exaggerating? The impeachment trial. Where are we now with no witnesses? We get an update from Washington. And Brexit is finally here. The last day the UK is in the EU. Mixed emotions. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, The World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus as a global health uh, um, uh, concern. Facebook has decided they are going to help out by limiting the spread of misinformation and false claims on the virus. To talk more about this, Mark Gordon is with us, marketer, expert, and is with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Nice to be here. So what is Facebook attempting to do here? Well, Facebook has stepped up and said, we are going to to remove or, uh, I guess, uh, downplay information that has been deemed by health officials and third parties to be false information regarding the coronavirus. That's basically it in a nutshell. So uh, wouldn't they be doing this anyway with any sort of false information, or are they? Well, now you're speaking rationally, yes. Uh, you <laughs> would think they would be doing this. Uh, Facebook is one of these companies I love to to talk about all the great work they're doing and pat themselves on the back. And in this case, I think it's deserved. Uh, there is a, a ton of misinformation out there, and the fact that they're stepping up and allowing um, respected uh, health authorities and known health authorities to, to let them know and say this is incorrect information. Um, yes, they're doing something good. On the flip side, there is only so much they can do. I mean, the false information is spreading far faster and they can handle it, not just on Facebook, but even on YouTube and Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, but if you want to look at it a little further, you know, back to your question, why haven't they done this before? And they've always had a rational reason why, you know, it would be, you know, limiting democracy or whatever it is, or, you know, preventing people from having opinions or whatnot. So I think this is easy for them. It's a great opportunity for them to step up and say, look, we are a socially responsible company. And I think the coronavirus fits right into that because it's so easy to identify. There's, there's really no, you know, there's no room for opinions. Basically, it's fact coming from, you know, the World Health Organization and other health authorities. And anything outside of that, it's easy for them to pull. You know, when you think about it, you brought up a very good val- uh, a valid point there, Mark, in the sense that, you know, if they're operating above board all the time on issues like this, whether it's coronavirus or not, then nobody would question them now. Uh, have they put themselves in this situation by not removing such falsehoods or perhaps uh, flagging them in some way? Well, I think that people generally have a, a short memory, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of people like you and I are doing right now saying, hey, you know what, you're pulling this stuff down, but what about all the other false information, whether it be about health-related issues or politics or world events or conspiracy theories or whatever it is? You know, that's, that's an easy question to ask, but I think Facebook, uh, you know, due to the world we live in and people always looking for the next thing, I think they're going to uh, get a break on this. Do you think they'll actually yank this stuff down, or do they just flag it and put a commentary on it in some way, just saying this is not necessarily factual, it's an opinion, blah, 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 some sort of disclaimer? From what I understand, based on, on the information that Facebook has stated, uh, some of it will be pulled, things that are blatantly incorrect, 
other things they will, um, I, I guess, whatever the term is, devalue in, in the fact that um, it won't come up in search results so much. They'll, they'll kind of push it down. So if you do a search for coronavirus, uh, more relevant and, and uh, I guess, quote-unquote, truthful information or, or fact-based information would be higher in the results. And, and some of the, the conspiracy theories and, and opinions and whatnot would be a little more difficult to find. But again, you know, there's a lot of people out there of influence whether it be just general influencers or political uh, individuals who have large followings who are sharing some of the false information. And I think it's, it's perpetuating faster than Facebook can keep up with it. Why are people spreading false information? Are they doing this knowingly? Are they doing this just to get hits because they know it's titillating content? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, I think there's a, a lot of people out there who get their kicks who say, you know what, this is a little bit of a chance for me to get some traction, to be known, to be a sort of a quasi-celebrity, to get those you know million views. And if I post something about a conspiracy theory or the fact there's already a cure and China's hiding it from the world or whatever it might be, both those things, by the way, like your listeners know, are not true, uh, but it, it attracts attention. And who doesn't like attention in the world of social media? And then on the other side, I think there are people who genuinely believe some of these things and yeah. don't trust the government. What happens though, Mark, if you're on, you know, if you're one of these people that are searching for, you know, you try to build, you're trying to build your online presence, what have you, and you start sharing this stuff, but then a lot of it turns out to be not credible. Does that not do more damage to the number of followers, whatever friends that you have? Well, it can outside of that, for sure. If you post something and a lot of people repost it or whatnot, and then it's deemed untrue, you, you may not only lose a lot of followers, but it will impact your personal brand, whether it be uh, whether you're representing a company or yourself or yourself uh, personally or professionally. It's it's very important that you be careful what you say uh, and the kinds of opinions you share, because it is a reflection of you. That's how it's viewed. So even if you share something somewhat controversial, whether it be about the coronavirus or otherwise, it does say something about you as an individual or you as a company. Uh, I was going to ask you about social media. I see here tweet, uh, Twitter users who search for information about the coronavirus are now given a link to the Center for D- uh, Disease Control and Prevention website on cor- uh, the coronavirus. YouTube and Google say they are promoting uh, authoritative information about the virus uh, to the top of search results. Is that the sort of thing Facebook should be doing as well? I mean, they're, they not only seem to be uh, monitoring what's going on, but also proactively uh, trying to put people in touch with the right information. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of interesting the, that uh, YouTube and uh, Twitter are taking that route because on the one hand, it's great to present that information at the forefront of searches, but on the other hand, uh, it's a really easy way out. They don't have to search through anything. Is they that is this an easy way out for them, Mark? So instead of doing or making the commitment that Facebook has, they're just saying, "Wow, here's all the places you should be going right off the top, and then what you do af- after that is up to you." Totally, it's a totally easy way out from a logistics perspective. But I will give them credit for at least putting that information at the top. How effective that is. So if you get the average person searching for coronavirus. And uh, they get that heading at the top saying, here's some reliable pieces of information or reliable sources. Are they really going to stop there? Probably not. My guess would be that they'd scroll down to all the juicy tidbits about 
you know, the, the, the real, you know, quote unquote, real information behind the coronavirus. Are we really overreacting to what is going on? Uh, you know, I, I see that there is certainly some concern about it. Uh, you know, I, I guess there is some hysteria in some parts, uh, but so much is, is North America. It seems as if we have this contained. And uh, as well, over time, we're also realizing, although this does have the ability to spread extremely fast, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's deadly or any more deadly than the common flu that we see every year. Uh, i.e. Uh, the patient in Toronto that was uh, quarantined is now uh, well enough to be going home and, and spend the rest of the quarantine there. Are we overreacting to this, do you think? Well, it's, it's a very subjective question, but let me throw this at you. Every year in Canada, 2,000 people die from the flu, from the regular flu. Yeah. With the coronavirus, there's been no deaths, three reported cases, and one of them, like you said, has been deemed well enough to re-enter the population. So really, when you think of it, your chance of getting the coronavirus is probably around 1 in 35 million. And yet, we see people lining up to buy masks, which, by the way, the masks that most people are wearing don't work. I know. I've, had, I've, I've had experts on talking about that. that a, yeah. In a lot of ways, they can be germ magnets, in a sense. In, in a matter of speaking, and they do block some stuff, but they're not blocking the coronavirus. But what they are doing is creating that, that impression of, of hysteria. Yeah. You know. And from what uh, I've heard from the experts that I've talked to, it's, it, if, you've, if you've got a cold, if you've got the flu, and you want to wear a mask, that helps protect other people. But if, yeah. you're, if you're fine and you, you want to wear the mask as a means of prevention, it doesn't necessarily do much. Absolutely correct. That is totally true. And I think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable when you're walking through through the subway, you're standing at a bus stop, and you're surrounded by people who are wearing masks. Mark Gordon has been with us, marketer, expert, and speaker. Uh, Mark, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So check out the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And don't forget Facebook and Twitter if you're into social media. The commentary today, no, rob- no robot will ever replace Wyerton Willie, Puxatani Phil... Or Shubinakati? Shubinakati? I have a memory like an, uh, well, it's, it's good, but it's just not very long. What is it? Shubinakati. What is it? Shubinakati, Sam. Shubinakati. <laughs> Are you sure? I think so. Shubinakati. Shubinakati, that's it. <laughs> See, that's one of, those, one of those names. I read it. It doesn't look anything like it's spelled. But, boy, you know, the Newfoundlanders are ticked off at me now. Uh, I'm doing my best. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to Reggie about some more pressing things. Joining us now to talk about everything. How, how do you know this name? And you're in Washington. I don't know. I am, I'm a wealth of all kinds of useless information. That's amazing. Uh, Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's joining us now. Uh, enough of the, by the way, the whole idea behind, uh, I guess, a, a, an activist from an animal welfare group wants to uh, make all of these uh, 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 groundhogs robots because it's cruel and unusual punishment. That being said, I talked to the mayor of Wyerton, and man, the complex that Wyerton Willie's in was designed by people at the Toronto Zoo. Nuff said there. Didn't know I mean, you... look, artificial intelligence can start telling us. <laughs> exactly. We don't need any. We don't need any groundhog. All right, uh, Reggie, bring us up to date. Before we do that, we want to play a real quick clip here of Senator uh, Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer uh, concerned about a fair trial. So it's deeply disturbing 
that on something of such importance to the future of our democracy, a few of my Republican colleagues announced last night they vote against hearing additional evidence. All right, Reggie, uh, bring us up to date on all of this. Tell us what's happening and where there is all kinds of chatter about witnesses. What has happened with that? I mean, speaking of Groundhog Day, this is exactly what's <laughs> happening in D.C. right now. It's the same argument that we don't know uh, what is going to be playing out, let alone, you know, later on today in the next half an hour or so, because things could change very quickly. Uh, where we are right now are uh, a potential four hour back and forth on uh, potentially getting witnesses to come forward. And we're actually still waiting on a Republican moderate senator, Lisa Murkowski, who was supposed to come out last hour and say whether or not she was going to be in favor of witnesses or not. She didn't do that. We're still waiting to hear what her answer is going to be. Even if it is a yes, I want to hear from a a witness, uh, it still leaves Democrats short and the room will be sitting at a 50-50 tie, which then puts the chief justice in a kind of politically awkward situation. So there's still a lot that is unknown uh, as we kind of wait for this, you know, what could potentially be the final day of the impeachment start up. So here we are, final day, and we don't even know if we will see more witnesses or not. It's not even that we don't know if we'll see new witnesses. We're also getting new allegations against the president via the New York Times at linked to John Bolton and, you know, a potential from his book that's coming out that says that, you know, in the springtime, he was asked by the president to approach the Ukrainian leader to talk about investigations by hooking up a meeting with Rudy Giuliani. He says he didn't do it, but he makes a point of saying that the held up appropriated security funding was linked to those investigations. And this is stuff that Democrats want to be entered onto the record, onto the floor. Uh, And I mean, here we are potentially at the final day and new information is still coming out via the newspaper. So, I mean, this is why we say, you know, it's fluid and it's unknown and we really are expecting the unexpected. Where is Bolton on all of this now? Is he ready to testify? Would he testify? Is he going to? I mean, he said that he would testify if he was subpoenaed. He said this back during the House inquiry. If Democrats would have subpoenaed him, uh, he said he would have been willing to come and speak at that point, knowing full well it would probably would have taken, you know, a year or more to get through that subpoena process. But even now, he said if he was subpoenaed, he would come and speak. I think there are a, a good number of Democrats and potential members of the Democratic base that are hoping that Bolton will simply just sit down with a journalist and kind of spill the beans on the non-confidential uh, and classified information that is being held held up with his book right now. But, you know, Democrats say John Bolton has a wealth of information to be able to provide for this trial and should be able to come out and do it. If we do see witnesses, uh, will he be the only one or will is, is there a whole slate of people here that, that we're not even aware of that might mm-hmm. be called? Well, I mean, the Republicans said that they wanted to hear from someone like Joe Biden, someone like Hunter Biden. They wanted to bring the whistleblower forward, uh, you know, and, and Democrats have always said that they didn't want to be jockeying back and forth by saying, you give us one, we'll give you one. That said, there were also some people that said, sure, let Hunter Biden come and speak to Congress because it could give him an opportunity to uh, clear his name. And, and it would kind of put a roadblock in front of the president's defense that, you know, Hunter Biden is the problem here and not what the allegations towards the president are. Uh, So when will we know? Well, I mean, you know, we thought at the beginning of the week that we knew what the answer was going to be. And here we are 13 minutes after this was supposed to start, and we still don't know what the answer is going to be. It's all kind of dependent right now if we get some kind of, you know, Friday surprise that says that potentially another Republican senator is going to side with the Democrats, although it's looking unlikely. Last night, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, who was potentially going to be that fourth vote with the Democrats, put out a statement essentially saying that, uh, you know, we don't need to hear any more evidence 
evidence. It was remarkable because he also made a point of saying, you know, the evidence shows that what the president did likely was wrong and it was proved by the House, but we should leave it up to the people and not up to the senators. And there is some criticism now by saying, you know, if you if you find that the president has done wrong, you're vested with the power to impeach him and you should follow through with that. But he says, leave it up to the people because it's an election year. Mitch McConnell said earlier on in the week uh, that he wasn't sure, or certainly we had heard information that he wasn't sure that he had enough votes to keep witnesses out of this trial. What happened? I mean, there are there are Republicans who were simply just listening to the president's defense counsel and they they made compelling arguments in the president's defense to say that what he did, while you know, maybe morally wrong and maybe perceived to be wrong, uh, you know, isn't ultimately uh, an uh, kind of a a removable offense. You know, he's been impeached and he'll always be impeached. But, you know, they, they argued that it doesn't constitute having the president leave the Oval Office. And I think that there are some Republican senators who have not only lined themselves up behind the president for the last two years or three years, but are finding themselves still standing with the president to say, sure, we shouldn't overturn the results of a Democratic election that happened uh, just a couple of years ago. I mean, it's it's in stark contrast to 10 years or to 20 years ago when uh, there were a number of Republicans saying that we should overturn the results of an election and have Bill Clinton thrown out from office. But this is just what happens when you have a majority turnover inside Washington. Um, morally wrong, illegal or not illegal. Uh, it, it seems that if everybody's in agreement, at least of what happened, it's whether it's an impeachable offense or something that we can or that they can remove the president uh, for. That being said, how is this capturing America's attention? Is this the same old, same old? Depends on what team you're on. Or are we are we swaying opinion here? No, I think that there could be some potential blowback for the Republican, particularly because this is an election year. And I think that this brings up two points here. If this were not an election year, if we weren't 11 months away from voters going to the booths, would this be different? Would Republicans not be saying it's an election year? Let's let the public decide. Let's do it ourselves. But I think when we're talking about the public and the fact that we're in an election year, the blowback for Republicans could be linked to the fact that 75 percent of Americans, according to the most recent polls, wanted to see witness testimony come forward. And I think that this could be problematic for Republicans at the uh, at the voter booth uh, later on this year when, you know, the public goes in and says, well, my senator didn't give an opportunity for someone to come forward and speak. And this could potentially, you know, be a negative on the Republicans uh, at the end of the year. And we could potentially see Democrats pick up some seats. I mean, it's it's too far out to know. And it's, you know, polling always gives you one way or the other. But there are some potential problems for Republicans with the way that they're handling the situation. Uh, In regard to Bolton's book, is the information not out now, in a sense? I mean, we're hearing uh, information that uh, the White House is trying to to stop this or or get certain pieces of information that they feel is classified, removed from from the publication. What's the deal there? And and is, is the cat out of the bag here? Well, I mean, John Bolton and his publishers and his legal team have said over the last couple of days that they argue against anything inside of his uh, his book, or at least the draft manuscript that's in the White House's hands right now, as being uh, classified and confidential. They said that, you know, this publishing team has dealt with a number of books before when it comes to uh, uh 
past political members and they say that they understand how to go through this and nothing is classified. Uh, and, you know, there's also questions as to why the White House held on to this document for so long and didn't pass it off to uh, leadership inside the Senate, knowing full well that a trial was starting up. But what's inside this book? I mean, it's, it's information that has been uh, debated over and over now for the last six months, but it does give that opportunity for Democrats to say this is another person with firsthand knowledge to the situation, especially with the information that's coming out today. And uh, and with that, Repu- they say Republicans should be jumping because they said for the five months that uh, there was no firsthand information. And, and now here they are giving up their opportunity to hear from someone. All right. So sum up what we're going to see today and what what will be the tipping point here that, that takes this to a different level. Well, here we are starting it right now. They're giving the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance, and we're seeing the breaking news that Senator Murkowski is going to vote no to bring witnesses forward. And because mm. of that, we now officially know that Democrats have lost uh, what high card they were trying to hold to get witnesses on the floor. This is not going to happen today. And uh, because of that, I mean, we're, we're kind of going to wait and see what happens. There will be four hours of debate on this witness. But now that we know that there just simply isn't the numbers for Democrats, the question now is is how long will it be until we head to a potential acquittal vote? Where Will that happen today? Or, as the Washington Post is reporting, is this going to be held and potentially take place after the State of the Union next week? So uh, the issue with no witnesses is, do- is done. That's over. There will be no witnesses called. That is what we're hearing right now. Uh, we already knew that Lamar Alexander was going to say no, and that was going to play a big deal into this. And Lisa Murkowski, if she had voted yes, would have been the 50-50 tie, putting the uh, Chief Justice in that kind of precarious situation to have to break a political tie when he's supposed to be a neutral judge. But uh, if if this is true right now, if Murkowski is voting no, it means that the, the chance to get witnesses on the floor is essentially just vanished. So this could wrap up today. Well, it could wrap up today. They had anticipated that this would be over, or at least the the vote for witnesses would take place by the supper hour, and then we would get into an acquittal vote. But the Washington Post is is still reporting that there is a potential for this to be held to happen next week to potentially close this out, and whether or not that's you know to to. Uh, you know, appease the Democrats or or what their reasoning is, we don't know. So it's, it potentially could end tonight, it could end tomorrow morning, or it could end Wednesday. This is why I keep saying we're at the very last moments here and we mm. still don't know what's going to happen and we can see the finish line. All right, Reggie, can't let you go without asking you one more question. This in regard to Boris Johnson announcing in the UK that uh, they'll open the door to Huawei and 5G. How does this play out in the United States? I mean, look, this, there are going to be back and forth uh, with this, especially given the fact that this is going to allow for Chinese technology to kind of have a bigger play or at least a, a minor play in what's a big move throughout the UK. It's something that the US has obviously not been for. Uh, you know, this, this could potentially throw a bit of a wrench into the negotiations between how the US and how the UK uh, moves forward with things. But I mean, this is still in the infancy. Uh, you know, they're still, you know, trying to get through the initial, you know, fact that the UK is not uh, a part of the European Union anymore. There are still things that need to be worked out. I think it's just a matter of of wait and see. Uh, we know the president spoke to uh, the prime minister earlier today, and you know that could potentially have been a part of the conversation. But for for how this might impact, uh, you know, the, the discussions back and forth between the White House and uh, and and the UK is still kind of to be seen. And how big is a story? How big is the coronavirus story down there? Well, you know what? This is actually kind of one of those moments where you realize that oftentimes the most pressing information when it comes to politics in the U.S., 
isn't as big as we all think it is. I mean, the president of the United States is impeached and, you know, at the end of the day, could or could not be removed from office in a couple of hours. And it's usually story three or four on the newscast right now because coronavirus is such a big deal. We have U.S. airlines that have officially said that they're going to pull out of traveling to China. We have the uh, pilots of U.S. of uh, of United rather trying to sue the airline to ensure that they don't have to fly there because it puts their health at risk right now. And we have the president who's actually put together a task force to be able to battle coronavirus, uh, you know, considering there's still so much unknown about it. It, it is it is a big story down here right now. There are people uh, that are uh, being monitored for it. We know that there was a person-to-person contraction in uh, the Chicago area. There's a number of people in the Washington metro area right now that are under uh, uh, close watch. This 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 is a big story right now, and it's actually big enough that it has outpaced the, the political news in the U.S. Mm. And they have repatriated some Americans back from China. How did that go? Uh, we understand that they're at a military base. Is that accurate? Yes, they were flown out of China through Anchorage, Alaska, and then brought down to the United States through California. And what we know is when they were taken off the plane, they were kind of put into uh, 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 kind of a hazmat area. They were put under a tent to kind of quarantine themselves, and they're going to be uh, sitting on this joint ba- or this military base for uh, a little while at least in order to ensure that none of them are uh, you know, holding on to the virus right now or that there's no possibility that if anyone is carrying a symptom right now that it's going to be passed on. Uh, this is, you know, there, there are still calls for the U.S. to send additional chartered flights into China to get people out right now. Uh, but for all we know is everybody that came in on that flight uh, is it, it has not been confirmed to be carrying anything right now. And it's simply just all out of precautions. Uh, difficult getting Americans out of there. I mean, it's difficult to get anybody out when there's an evacuation situation going on, especially, uh, you know, during what's a, a global health crisis. You don't want to be sending planes in that could potentially be picking up a virus, that, that pilots could be picking up a virus. It's it's a, it's a very kind of risky situation. And, you know, eyes are still sitting on Canada right now, knowing that a third virus has uh, officially been uh, discovered throughout the country and that this potentially could be happening in the U.S. and that there's a kind of a global issue right now in trying to ensure, uh, make sure that these evacuations are taking place and that people are actually being looked uh, looked after. I mean, this is this is a virus that is, uh, you know, the the uh, the lengths of where it's going to go are still unknown. There's no uh, there's no vaccine for it. And I think that, you know, the U.S. government, uh, like the Canadian government, is simply just trying to get their people out and control the situation as best they can within their own borders. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, thanks for joining us on a real busy day. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The day has come. Brexit is finally here. After three and a half years of, uh, you know, you think back to a, uh, a time when I guess David Cameron first threw this whole idea out, not thinking we would end up where we are. Uh, now, of course, the last day of the UK being in the EU. Here's what Redmond Shannon has to say. He's covering the big day in London. It's uh, divided as ever, really. You have a lot of people who are celebrating this day and a lot of people who are very sad about this day. The United Kingdom opinion polls still say it's close to 50-50. It's slightly one way or slightly the other. So there will be a lot of celebration. That is, of course, um, reflected in the newspapers here. Um, you see a lot of a, uh, division on, on what the newspapers show. You have some celebrating the fact that the UK is leaving and some bemoaning the fact and saying it's a bad thing for the United Kingdom. One real thing is that the UK leaves and the EU drops a member. But for the next 11 months, the UK will abide by and mirror EU rules through a transition period 
where they hope to strike a free trade agreement with the EU, similar to the EU's free trade agreement with Canada. That's what they're hoping for, some sort of deal like that. And the devil's in the detail there. So over the next year, at least, there's going to be a lot of debate about exactly what that future relationship is going to look like. So really, nothing major changes. It's all about symbolism today. Wow, that's Redmond Shannon covering this uh, for Global. It's been such a long time, it appears. And many thought that we would never get to this day. Many thought that something, some, uh, something somehow, somewhere would happen that would uh, turn this whole thing around. Let's bring in Kurt Hubner. He is with the Institute for European Studies, University of British Columbia. He is with us now. Kurt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good morning or good afternoon. What do you, how do you think, what do you think the mood is in the UK today? Uh, Redmond Shannon said it's pretty much split. Would this just be like uh, the, the election day of the referendum or even the last election? It depends on which side you are, are, are on. I, I, it sounds like they're laughing and crying across the pond. Yeah, I mean, it definitely depends on which side you are, but also where you are located. Uh, your uh, correspondent was uh, sitting in London, obviously. So London overwhelmingly is in favor or was in favor of staying in the European Union. So I think that the mood there differs enormously compared to other parts of the UK, indicating that uh, until now, uh, the UK, when it comes to European membership, is still a highly divided uh, country. And if, even it's only a kind of arithmetic, but if you would add, add up all the votes uh, from December election, looking what kind of parties have been voted for, then you could see a majority of the votes are still for parties who are actually making the argument saying you are going for the second referendum. So it's still a divided country, but now it's a historic day, things will change. And uh, during the transition period, we'll see probably new coalitions, new conflicts, uh, actors who have to work now through everything uh, that all kind of challenges are in front of them. We remember that, you know, it's hard to believe this has been going on for three and a half years, but it, it has meant a great deal of instability for the UK. Uh, whether you agree with this or not, and whether you, you think it's the right thing to do, stay or to leave, does this somehow stabilize things where at least there's now some sort of way forward? I think so. Uh, uh, reality uh, moved in and uh, uh, today uh, at 11 o'clock, uh, they left, and uh, so it's a new kind of page uh, that has now to be filled. And looking back is one thing, but I think so. The most important uh, part is now looking forward. And uh, a Brexit is not an event; it's a process. You know, it's still going on, and uh, the next couple of months will decide how are the relations looking. Uh, like uh, between the UK and the, uh, and the EU, but also what kind of socio-economic, let us say, past model the consortiums will go for. Because it, it's not only about uh, the relations EU uh, and the UK, it's also what would they like to accomplish in the highly uh, divided country. And I think so the, the, the speech of Boris Johnson today will indicate that one task in front of them is also to heal and to bring together those various kind of parts of the UK. Think about there are still independence efforts on the side of uh, Scotland. There are uh, coming elections uh, in, in Ireland, and there may be Sinn Féin, the party that is in the Republic, as well as Northern, uh, Northern Ireland, relatively strong. They may become a critical actor, and Ireland, Northern Ireland, also voted to stay uh, in the European Union. So there are a lot of conflicts, and they need to be 
dealt with. Uh, there need to be fine compromises and so on and so on. So a huge task in front for this government. We all remember when this was all happening uh, prior to this, that the uh, the backstop, Northern Ireland, the border there uh, being open to the or closed to the EU. How did they resolve that? Will that still be a simmering issue for them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there, there is definitely uh, uh, the breakthrough from uh, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement to the withdrawal agreement of Boris Johnson has very much to do uh, with Northern Ireland. And we see in this withdrawal agreement, there will be now, even though until three days ago, Boris Johnson was saying it's not true, but there will be a border in the Irish Sea. Something Theresa May was saying, we will never accept something like this because this is questioning the integrity of the UK. Exactly this clause is now part of the withdrawal agreement that has been seen uh, by Northern Irish uh, political parties as a huge kind of defeat. And uh, Boris Johnson was taking this gamble. He was winning. Uh, and until three days ago, I was thinking there will be no border checks, nothing. He changed his mind, or not his mind, he changed the information channel, so to say. And two days ago, he was saying there will be border checks uh, and all those kind of things. So this is a huge quality. And uh, we have to be aware Northern Ireland will be much closer aligned with the European Union than the rest of the UK. So this already introduces a kind of charm, an element of uh, diversion, of conflict that will uh, go on for the next couple of years. Uh, will we, we all know how difficult it has, been, it has been for the UK over the last three years or so. Will the next year be any easier? Is this just a case of dotting the I's and crossing the T's, or is this going to be a, a dragged-out ordeal very much the, the way the last couple of years have been? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the question is uh, whether Boris Johnson will keep his word. Uh, the withdrawal agreement has been moved into also, or translated into a so-called withdrawal bill. So that's the kind of the bill, the law, that operates the withdrawal from the European Union. And in this withdrawal bill, there's a clause that is not included in the withdrawal agreement. This means no, this clause is saying, no British government is allowed to extend the transition period after 31st of December 2020. So it means that the, the Conservatives put into this withdrawal bill a clause that makes clear everything needs to be negotiated the next 11 months. And that's a pretty ambitious and probably not very realistic uh, proposition. Think about uh, if they would really like to go for something like CETA, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement between the EU and Canada, this needed seven or eight years. Uh, Eleven months, uh, there will be no way that any kind of a deep agreement will be uh, made and signed and ratified. So it will be a shallow uh, agreement, and this will promise and, and, and probably indicate there will be some more economic pain coming along than uh, uh, many are expecting at this moment. So it will be difficult. It will be uh, very intense. Uh, and at the same time, the UK also wants to, in a parallel way, wants to negotiate an ambitious trade agreement with the US. So uh, not to talk about it, many others, they need to, to, uh, to uh, negotiate. So it will be a busy time uh, for UK uh, civil service and for the trade negotiators and so on. So uh, there will be a lot of talk and discussions going on the next couple of months. 
Several decades ago, it was always about doing some sort of free trade deal, uh, breaking down all of these regional ba- uh, barriers and such, and, and, and making uh, the market open, which is how we got to where we are. It now seems as if we're, we're doing it the old way and, and doing all of these individual agreements uh, separately again, as opposed to something that, that, that's large and, and impacts a nation or, or several nations. Um, is this going backwards or is this just redefining what we need? Perhaps being too broad didn't work. Uh, it doesn't it, it doesn't address everybody's interests. Uh, do you see do you see them moving backwards on this in the sense that, um, you know, we're, we're giving up these big trade deals that we we work so hard to to come up with several decades ago for these more. Uh, uh, smaller uh, agreements, which, I don't know, are they more efficient or less efficient? Yeah, I mean, definitely Brexit can be seen as uh, one critical, big, but still one element of a global wave of uh, protectionism going back to the role of the nation state. So national preferences, national interests are now dominating. It's not only uh, since uh, uh, Mr. Trump uh, in the U.S., it's really a global wage. You can see the EU so far uh, is on a total different path. They try to defend it. They are doing the hard work in defending something like uh, the multilateral institutions like WTO, the World Trade Organization, something the U- U.S. is uh, attacking uh, and so on. So the uh, Brexit is nothing less than in this regard a kind of deglobalization strategy. Okay, I'm going back, uh, really the nation state is the, 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 the core of interest. And uh, this implies then they want to work out all this kind of many individual trade agreements. The question, though, is then when it comes to UK, is it really realistic to think that a relatively small economy in global perspective uh, will be more successful in getting good terms with others compared if they would be still part of the European Union? Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of uh, knowledge out there that you can doubt that the outcome will be better because uh, the EU, uh, whatever you like it or not, but it's a pretty big and powerful uh, yeah. organization that has really the power and the, the kind of uh, and the, the resources to be relatively successful when it comes to trade agreements. The UK now being all by itself will have much more problems to do this. And we will experience this not only in relation to the EU, also when it comes to trade agreement and then negotiations with the US, with India, with China, and so on. It's a minor player now. What about Scotland? Where does this leave Scotland in all of this? I understand they're still flying the EU flag. They are flying the EU flag. Uh, you know, from a from a purely political perspective, I think so. They will really try hard to get the permission from London because that's something they need to go for our next referendum for Scottish independence. Whether this makes uh, sense in terms of economics, uh, I'm not sure about it. Uh, whether they will be easily able to claim or reclaim the membership in the European Union. I'm not sure about it. It will be difficult because a lot of uh, other interests in the European Union not to set this kind of, as a kind of model that a region, so to say, can easily uh, uh, claim uh, or reclaim membership in the European Union. So there are a lot of problems. But having said that, there is a strong tendency inside Scotland. We saw this also in the, in the outcome of the election. The Scottish National Party was extremely successful. So they will try hard to win uh, a, a yes for a second referendum. And chances are, given uh, the, the leaving the EU, 
uh, chances are that this time the referendum will really show and come to the result that there may be uh, uh, independence efforts and uh, this would change the game. And there's definitely something, efforts, and we'll see this uh, more, let's say, realistic opportunities for uh, medium term or so Irish unification. So, you know, it can end up a worst case scenario that Brexit also implies a kind of uh, small England. Uh, what about going back? Uh, you know, I'm watching clips of all of this on the news last night, and there's, uh, you know, a young lady standing there in in front of Parliament saying, you know, the people that are in there now won't be there forever. My generation's coming in. Uh, this isn't, you know, set in stone, so to speak. Can 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 politics change this back? Can there be another referendum? I mean, is that can you turn this thing back around? Yeah, I mean, it's a long shot. I mean, you know, the the the, the, the Conservative government has no mandate for five years. So that's a long time. That's a, that's a huge majority. So they can do quite a lot. And this means uh, uh, they may not put uh, the UK on a kind of irreversible path, but to reverse it, this will be difficult. So if you talk about it, uh, I would think about the next in the next 10 years or so, there may be efforts. So it will be a longer period, definitely, uh, where the UK will move forward outside the European Union. This may happen forever, depending also on the kind of the global development you will see. You know, is this really this wave I talked about? <laughs> well, uh, will it continue? Will we see more kind of return of the role of the nation state rather than those kind of supranational, multinational, multilateral institutions? How all this develops has implications for the for the path of the uh, UK. So we will see, but definitely uh, the next couple of years, it's all about uh, how to have as close as possible relations between the EU and the UK. Well, that's in the interest of the EU too. But the EU is getting weaker with the leaving when the, uh, uh, since the UK is leaving the European Union. Mm-hmm. So there's an interest that they are uh, work together in, in, in many areas much, much closer. But we'll have to see. It needs to be negotiated. It's not easy. And the idea that uh, Johnson was propagating a time ago, saying you know, we can have the cake and eat it, uh, this is not possible. The EU needs, in order to defend their own kind of institutions, they need to make clear it's a premium included if you're a member of the European Union or if you're outside, you don't get this premium. Hmm. So uh, the, EU, the, the UK is definitely, in this regard, losing out compared to the status quo. Are you surprised on a totally different matter? Are you surprised that Boris Johnson has opened the door to Huawei to jump into the 5G? Yeah, uh, it was a bit surprising. I mean, um, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act for all of them, including also for Canada. Uh, you know, because Huawei is already, not only here in Canada, on the UK or in other parts of Europe, they're already there. It's not to grant them access in a kind of new way. They're already uh, engaged uh, with their technologies, with their operations mm-hmm. in many European countries, including the UK. Closing the door would create a lot of problems because then also would mean uh, they would, would need to substitute the already existing technology in this whole kind of network infrastructure. So the idea to open the door partially uh, may be a very pragmatic one, a good one. It may not be in the interest of the US. But uh, it shows already that uh, for the government, 
it will be really a, a very delicate uh, walking line between, on the one side, having friendly and good relations with the United States of America that are such in such a confrontation with the EU, and at the same time uh, managing and maintaining good relations with the European Union. So it's an excellent case to see that they are willing to be pragmatic and to be into compromise. Whether what what it all implies, we'll see. Hmm. Kurt Hubner has been with us, Institute for European Studies, University of British Columbia. Kurt, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. Bye now. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.